This episode is sponsored by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. For more information, please visit beefitswhatsfordinner.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, welcome to the new age of carbon removal, the sustainability superpower of enzymes, Zipcar's founder on the future of urban mobility, and the wisdom of Warriors head coach Steve Kerr. It's a slam dunk this week on 350. It's October 26, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from beautiful Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Well, hello, Joel. It was wonderful to see you last week. And that I have to give you a good thumbs up on that last little pun there. Awesome. Good one this week. <laughs> yeah, well, I was a full court press to try and figure something oh. out here. <laughs> no, all right. Anyway, let's move on. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a uh, uh, busy week last week. Uh, we had our Verge conference and... Uh, uh, which we'll get into. We're going to play some more highlights. We did a little bit last week. We're going to do a few more this week, some excerpts from the main stage and uh, and a few other things. But then as Verge was ending, you flew off to St. Louis. <laughs> Sing us a little about what that was about. Okay. So for those of you who don't know it, I am a sweet Adeline. Yes. A bona fide acapella singer. Uh, four-part harmony for women and the international competition was uh, in St. Louis right on top of Verge as it happens and uh, my chorus was competitor number 31. Out of how many? So there's 35 choruses that compete. It's a combination of the regional winners and wild cards. Uh, in other words, uh, um, those who scored high enough to, to draw a a seed, if you will, in the, in the competition. And my course was a wild card and uh, we did not make the top 10, which was a goal. However, we got a standing ovation. No doubt. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's just, uh, that's an, another facet of Heather Clancy. Um, that's great. Uh, and um, yeah, so one of these days we're going to have to have to hear <laughs> the sweet Adeline's you perform. That would be, oh, is it, we have seen, I've seen a, a, a video, YouTube video. So that's cool. Um, but uh, yeah, now we're, <laughs> it's sort of, this is sort of like a, a hangover week, mm -hmm. you know, just uh, not, not, not from drinking, although there was a little of that going on, but it was mostly just the incredible intensity of putting on this event. Oh, and all the other stuff going mm -hmm. on around the mm -hmm. hotel strike and, and whatever. It, it was all encompassing and it takes a little bit of time to get past that. Just the, because uh, I mean, it's, it's such a great intensity. It's so much fun. And it, and it's it's just, you live for these kinds of moments when everything's coming together and the GreenBiz team, as always, is is performing at peak performance and just doing it, uh, getting it done, which is, for me, one of the most 
enjoyable parts of these events. And then it's over. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like a letdown. It cold, cold stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Screeching yep. halt. Yeah. So anyway, I'm almost over it. But um, it's it's on to the next thing. And the next thing we're working on our state of green business report. We're getting uh, naming the 10 trends that we'll be talking about when we release that in, uh, I think, early February. And that follows uh, on the heels of that is the Green Biz 19 conference in Phoenix. And it, the hits just keep coming. And some, some new stuff, which we'll be announcing before the year is out, some, uh, some number of new things that we're going to be doing in 2019. I'm pretty excited about it. So let's move forward. But uh, let's also move back to the Week in Review. So I'll start us off this week, Joel. I am reading a story called How Novazymes Harnesses the Sustainability Superpower of Enzymes. Woo! It's a one of those fun, techie, wonky pieces that I love. Um, this is by Jennifer Gerholt, the Director of Corporate Engagement with We Mean Business. And um, it's a great piece on this company that uh, I don't know how many people have heard of them. I'm aware of them because I like I said, I am a geek, um, but they are a Danish company that focuses on the development of enzymes. And it's um, one of these companies that you probably use products um, that their products are in, but you probably don't know it. They're in 40 different industries from, from household care to animal health and, and so forth. And, you know, the idea behind enzymes is that, you know, in many instances, they can help replace um, you know, otherwise toxic chemicals. They, they, they take on processes that, uh, that we might use a, a, a chemical for, and they can either reduce how much we use, or they maybe can all, you know, catalyze a process in, in ways that you don't even need the chemical anymore. Just one example that, that probably will bring it home for most people, if you think about leather, right? So, um, you know, a, a contentious type of fabric, but, but, you know, something that many people still use for shoes and so forth. Um, untreated leather, very stiff, hard to work with. And so as a result, many designers, manufacturers use sulfide to soften it up. Um, and that's, that happens to be a really toxic chemical. Um, enzymes can, can help reduce the input of, of those chemicals. So that's why this company means something to the rest of us. Uh, but, uh, it's a great story on, on sort of where they're involved and, and you know, how they make a, a difference in other products. And then there's a, a great storyline on how much they're doing to their own processes to be a better citizen of, of the business world. Yeah, this is not a new company, by the way. This is a 70-year-old company that's um, uh, actually its roots even go back to 1925, so almost 100 years old. You know, one of the products that we all use that comes out of uh, their shop and maybe some others is, is laundry detergent. I mean, this enzyme, fat-splitting enzymes for detergents, uh, I think uh, Novozymes pioneered that in the late 1980s. And later it was spun out of the pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk, which we've also written about. So they've got a, a fairly strong sustainability bent, and, and, and Jennifer uh, in her piece gets into 
some of the of the ways that they're operating, both uh, in in their product development and, as you said, internally cutting their direct emissions through a number of different means, including renewable energy purchases. So uh, yeah, this is one of those companies that is behind the scenes of most of our lives, but uh, it also touches most of our lives. And I, I think it's just interesting to kind of get a little peek um, behind the scenes about what's going on there and, and who this company is. And I like uh, Jennifer's piece. It's part of this uh, uh, series of, of looking at innovators that uh, we've been doing. The, the, another series, which has turned to a different story that we've been doing, and Mia Overall, who's a sustainability strategy consultant, has been doing this series on companies that are hiring their first director of sustainability. And this week she took on Lyft, which actually hired not just uh, a new, their first sustainability director, but also a head of social impact. So it's a bit of a twofer here. Um, and, and I just thought, uh, look at the interview she did with Sam Aarons, the director of sustainability, and Mike Masterman, the head of social impact. It's just pretty interesting. We don't think of these companies, um, we think of them in the sharing economy or, or the gig economy or the ride hailing service. Um, we don't necessarily think of them as uh, directly in sustainability. And uh, Lyft, for one, certainly has done that. They've, they've made their entire fleet an office carbon neutral, and they're covering 100% of its electricity consumption with renewable energy. They've signed on to the Paris Agreement. They're advocating for policies to help fight climate change. And uh, so they've, they, they've been engaged in ways that often haven't shown up publicly before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it was interesting for me, but I, I learned a couple things that I did not know. Um, well, first of all, Sam is, is, um, Sam comes from Google, which to me is like, Ooh, aha. So he's got, you know, they've done some, so many great audacious things there with renewable energy commitments and, and investments that I'm, I'm watching eagerly now to see how that applies over at, at Lyft. You can tell he's going to, they, he, he and Mike will, uh, will be very involved with policy. They're already talking about how to, to help use Lyft's voice to um, help shape policies that will help sort of with the, the changes that we need to the transportation system. But I had no idea how much Logan Green and John Zimmer, the, the Lyft co-founders, were involved with early thinking about ur you know, urban planning and congestion. I, I learned that Logan was actually behind something called the Green Initiative Fund in, at UC Santa Barbara. And it was <laughs> fun. I think started in the mid, um, like in the tw 2006 timeframe, that basically um, the students started it. And it was a basically a fee to help the university kind of... Um, offset its impact uh, and, and, and give grants to organizations um, that could help sort of reverse things. So I, I was I was just fascinated to learn more about the, the co-founders as well. So yeah, that's a great piece. That was a that Green Initiative Fund was, was interesting. Um, and the students basically taxed themselves $3.47 per quarter. I have no idea why that amount, but it, it cr created a fund of about $170,000 a year to uh, use to help reduce the, the university's environmental impact. Uh, that was the first uh, UC st school to do that and, and probably one of the first schools back in uh, 2006 anywhere to do that. So uh, kudos on that. Yeah, so I guess the final piece, just to go back to uh, our Verge mindset, if you will, is a, is a, a wonderful roundup piece that uh, 
our assistant editor, Holly Seekin, did um, six takeaways from Verge 18. And, you know, I got I to gotta hand it to her. This was her first Verge, right? And um, if you and I are overwhelmed, <laughs> can you imagine how someone who's never been there? Uh, Actually, I can't. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we had lots of first-time attendees, but, but someone who's charged with going in and sort of figuring it out and <laughs> summarizing it in, uh, in a thousand words or so, that, that's, that's a, kind of a heroic uh, endeavor. And I, what I do appreciate is that um, she did a great job of identifying the themes that I know the program director, Elaine Shea, was thinking about a lot when she put together the program with you and, and the others, um, Joel. And, and frankly, she didn't have any prompting or, or <laughs> these were not preceded themes. These are the things that she walked away with, necessity of greater investment in decarbonization, right? So we talked a lot about carbon removal during the event, but there were some awesome um, accomplishments on the renewable energy uh, investment side. There were actually, I think, three different new power purchase agreements announced during the event, Iron Mountain, Microsoft, and Walmart. For me, a particular theme that um, I I sort of, I read this one and and thought, yeah, you're totally right. the urgency of a systems change is currently unmatched with systems changing. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, I, I love that, was, that, that one. Was, that we talk about systems change. And of course, we are the system and everyone in the room is the system. And everyone nods their head when we say, we need to change the system. But very little actual systems are changing, at least uh, in any significant way. There's lots of tweaks and and incremental efficiency measures and things like that. And I love the fact that Holly called us out on that, called everybody out on that, and specifically looking at the, if if you you pull that theme out of of all the things that went, the 300 some odd speakers and the more than 100 sessions and the three summits and the half a dozen or so tutorials and Everything else that was going on there, she pulled that out. I think kudos, Holly, on that. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's a great criticism, but it's also no excuse for not experimenting, right? So that that also comes through is like, yeah, we're tweaking, and but you know what? Only by continuing to experiment are we going to get that systems change. So um, that's true in, in, in for example, mobility um, solutions. Um, Robin Chase and Gabe Klein. Uh, who both, uh, Robin Chase, of course, being the Zipcar founder um, and, and a huge transportation um, sort of advocate and, and, and advocate of systems change in the urban level. Um, Gabe Klein, co-founder of, of CityFi and also um, with some very specific urban um, uh, transportation planning experience. And, you know, they had a great presentation that they did on, um, you know, why that that change is is probably, you know, yes, we, we're not changing quickly enough, but we're not going to even don't get let don't let that paralyze you, if you would. Don't let that put the the red light in front of you. Um, you know, get keep moving forward and so forth. So it was a great piece. I thought she did a really good job. Kudos, Holly. So sticking with Verge, uh, Joel, and because because we will for the rest of the program, <laughs> we're almost all of it. Uh, I, you had quite a few um, main stage sessions that you hosted, as, as you always do, and I am wondering if you had some that, that really stuck with you. I mean, clearly all awesome speakers, but um, any particular sessions? 
Well, you know, I love all my children, but there were some great uh, sessions I really enjoyed and, and learned a lot from. Um, starting off uh, almost once we got going and on Tuesday afternoon, um, there was a session on catalyzing a new carbon economy with uh, Julio Friedman from uh, formerly with the Department of Energy, uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, now with uh, Columbia University, Kate Gordon uh, with the Paulson Institute and uh, Ridge Lane, which is a venture capital group, and Charlene Russell, who's the vice president of low carbon solutions for Occidental Petroleum, Oxy as, it, as it's known. Uh, just interesting, I mean, Occidental Petroleum talked about wanting to be the first emissions neutral oil and gas company, to which the question I asked on stage was, really? You know, how does that work? And uh, there is a you know, path that they're on and around it, it, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, injecting it into the ground to, to bring up oil and calling it low carbon oil. I don't think it includes the combustion of that uh, oil in, in, in automobiles or, or other things. But um, again, to, to the extent that we're going to continue to have oil and gas for a while, making it low carbon is, is I think, the thing to do. But I, I want to play a little clip from Kate Gordon, who's, uh, I think, just extraordinarily thoughtful and articulate about a lot of things, but particularly in the, in the low-carbon area, uh, sort of asking her just to, where are we in this world of uh, low-carbon technologies and, and a new carbon economy? Here's what she said. So we know from most recently the IPCC report that just came out last week and from a lot of other things before that, that to get where we need to get with climate, stopping, slowing down climate change, we need to do several things, right? We need to do the decarbonization stuff that a lot of this conference is about and we've all been talking about. We need to electrify what we can in transportation, in the electricity sector, obviously. We need to use renewables where we can. We need to be more efficient. There is a set of things, though, beyond that, which is really what we're talking about, which this report lays out, we have to actually take carbon out of the air. So carbon removal, which has been around for a long time through CCS and through other uh, enhanced oil recovery, other practices, is now planting trees takes carbon out of the air. I mean, it's been around a long time. We need to actually do that. We now know from the modeling it's necessary no matter what else we do. And so all of a sudden, a lot of people are focusing their attention on what is this set of things that's carbon removal? And the one thing I'll say about it is that, um, that people have different ideas about what that is, but honestly, it's a real range of things. I mean, it is everything from planting a tree, afforestation, reforestation, better practices in agriculture, all the way through to what I hope we'll get to talk about a little bit, which is you know, engineered solutions like direct air capture, actually taking carbon out of the air, putting it underground, or using it for interesting new innovative things. So we've been hearing about this for a long time, and, and you mentioned the CCS carbon capture sequestration. We'll talk to Charlene about that in a minute, but Oxy, but uh, the, the, the short answer on all the stuff is that, yeah, it's, it's science fiction, it's expensive, it's nothing that we can do uh, in any economical uh, or cost-effective way. Uh, is that still the, the answer, or is this changing? I mean, I know both of these guys will talk more about this, but it's, it depends on which technology you're talking about. I mean, I think it really is changing. For, for instance, you know, people are already doing the forest practices and ag practices stuff because it's literally giving them a benefit. I mean, they're getting more yield out of their soil because of these practices. They're selling, tribes in Idaho are selling into the California offset market because of these practices. 
Um, CCS and enhanced oil recovery are absolutely economical because you're creating value. And more and more in Julio, I'm sure we'll talk about this, we're seeing people actually doing direct air capture and taking that carbon and doing interesting things with it that do have value. And so the presumption here is that this is increasingly a business, uh, yeah. a business opportunity of some sort. Yeah, well, and particularly as prices on carbon happen all over the world. I mean, 20 countries, 40 jurisdictions have prices on carbon now. They're getting higher and higher. Things like the low carbon fuel standards are setting prices. 45Q in the tax bill is setting prices. These are giving people new opportunities to get value out of these practices that didn't exist before. The other session that I really liked also on Tuesday was called Unleashing the Global Circular Economy. Now, I think people are starting to get the sense that we are doubling down or if not tripling down on a circular economy. It's just, it, Verge Circular was one of the three concurrent conferences we had last week in Oakland. Uh, we certainly do a, a circular economy track at our GreenBiz conference. We've been covering it increasingly. And we'll have an announcement about something else we'll be doing in that arena very, very soon. This had uh, just a great group, uh, Del Hudson, who heads the uh, Circular Economy 100 uh, group for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in North America, Kara Hurst, who's the head of sustainability at Amazon, and Cyrus Wadia, who is uh, the Vice President for Sustainable Business and Innovation. I always love it when those two titles go together at a little shoe and athletic equipment company called Nike. There is so much going on in this, and we, we want, increasingly as we do these sessions on the circular economy, we get past the 101. What is a circular economy? How does it differ from the linear economy? And get much more into how does this really happen? Um, and I think what was interesting, I just prior to this clip we're going to play, I had talked with uh, Kara Hurst from Amazon, Amazon is really uh, ultimately an incredible logistics company. That's sort of what they do really, really well, among other things, marketing, consumer education, and stuff like that. Turned to Cyrus from Nike and said, okay, well, if, if Amazon is an incredible logistics company, Nike's really a incredible materials company, innovations in materials, something they've been doing for a long, long time. And I asked him about that, and here's what Cyrus Wadia had to say. What gets me really excited about circularity is that you know, I look at this as a real driver of growth for the company. And we have uh, a real emphasis and desire to innovate through this lens of sustainability and, in some cases, circularity. One thing that we just closed on that I want to say a few words about is what we call the Circular Innovation Challenge. And this is one where we said, look, we've got all this waste out there post-consumer, pre-consumer, we want to figure out, can we do better things with this? Is there a marketplace that we can start yeah, kind of creating around waste? And so we issued a challenge to the world. And you know, basically, it was a simple question, which is, here's our waste. Can you do something with it? Send us your ideas. We were blown away by the reception. The, we got over 600 credible proposals across 60 different countries. And what that signaled to me is that there is a really healthy solver network out there that's ready and on the sidelines to work on these types of problems. And just yesterday, we announced the winners, and I encourage everybody in this room, uh, take a look. The, the five winners are really exciting product concepts from yoga blocks to, to other things. But uh, one of the less sexy parts of the program was also around this idea of post-consumer waste, where the question was, 
can we actually make our post-consumer waste look more like pre-consumer waste because we know that there are channels through which we can drive that. Mm -hmm. And this is just the start in terms of how we activate these sovereign networks externally to bring new ideas into Nike and then using the power of our brand and our platform to drive those innovations to scale. Yes. So Joel, I was really jealous because I had to go to my competition. I totally missed the one session I really, really, really wanted to see. You had the opportunity to interview the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr. So I want to hear about that conversation. Yeah, that was kind of fun. I mean, it just worked out. Uh, the Golden State Warriors practice facility is on the fifth floor above the Oakland Convention Center where we had our event. That's not the only reason we had him there, uh, but it, it just made it easy for him that the Warriors opening night opening game of the season had been the night before uh it was and they won it was just always uh, not unusual for the warriors but uh so we had steve down and um you know steve coach kerr has been uh, a really outspoken sports figure and i wanted to talk about that uh, and the, the the title of the session was leadership patriotism and community service. We did not talk about Steph Curry, or his name came up, but not really. And, and I really wanted to ask him about you know, this particular moment in sports and free expression in America. And this is the first of two clips. This is a really interesting and challenging time to be a professional athlete in America as it relates to freedom of expression, patriotism, a whole range of other issues. And you've been pretty outspoken on all of that. You've called the NFL uh, rule, uh, uh, what's the quote? Oh, idiotic. <laughs> and uh, talk, talk a little bit about how you see this time. I think it's a difficult time to be a human being. Um, it, it is, it's just, it's a strange time. Um, for a, a number of reasons. And, and you know, this, is, this could go on for days, this conversation. But I think where we are right now in the world, um, you look at over the last 20 years, and uh, w w whether you want to talk about 9-11 or the, the real estate financial collapse of 07, 08, the, the impact uh, that that has had on our country combined with social media, um, we have this weird existence now where everybody is just sort of yelling at each other and, and uh, fearful and dividing and conquering. And, and now we have a president who just tries to divide daily and turn it into a one side versus the other. And so as an athlete, as a coach, as a public figure, um, these days you're sort of thrust into the middle of that. Um, and you can either accept that or you can say no thanks. And, and uh, I, I find it it's important to accept it and embrace it and discuss it because I think we have a lot of problems that we need to fix in this country. Not that we're going to single-handedly you know, fix things, but at least we can join the discussion and maybe make people think. I also asked him about something he had said around community service, and uh, I just thought it was a really interesting piece of the conversation. So here's that piece as well. You talked about community service as being, if, I don't know if you said the highest form of patriotism, but you equated community service 
with patriotism. And of course, uh, the NFL and the Warriors, like I think probably most professional sports teams are involved in, in the sure. community and, and a certain amount of philanthropy. But talk a little bit more, what, what was behind that? Well, I think the, the NFL thing really bothered me. You know, um, peaceful resistance is what we're built upon. And, um, you know, you think back to the 60s, to the civil rights movement, there was a large group of African-American athletes who peacefully protested. And that led to some really positive changes in our country, in our world. Um, at the time, they were not very popular, those athletes. Muhammad Ali was vilified. You know, now everybody says, oh, he was a great American. You know, back then, you know, we were ready to send him to prison for not going to Vietnam. Tommy uh, Jones and the 68 Olympics. Carl, yeah, John Carlos. John Tom, uh, and then, you know, you had uh, Lou Alcindor who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown. You had a lot of athletes who were really pushing for civil rights, and, but it was not popular at the time. So when you have somebody like Colin Kaepernick, uh, Malcolm Jenkins with the Eagles that comes to mind immediately, um, take a knee during the anthem and say, this is what I am protesting, right? Um, inhumanity, I'm protesting um, racial inequities, and, uh, and violence, um, and then they backed that up by donating money and time to charitable causes, um, and we're gonna push back against that, um, and then we're gonna wave the flag. Um, people need to remember what the flag is about, and, and that, that really bothered me, and I felt like the flag was just being used as a political tool, and that the NFL was right in the middle of all that with their handling of it, and uh, that really bothered me. I, w I follow these guys. Um, Malcolm Jenkins is one of the leading figures in our, in our country for prison reform. <clears throat> he's, uh, I think he plays safety for the Philadelphia Eagles, and he is, he's lobbied Congress. I mean, he's doing so much good for, for this country and for his fellow man, and so we're gonna create an issue about whether somebody's taking a knee, or are we gonna create, or are we gonna talk about what actually the issue is? And then the, the, the bigger principle, the bigger uh, idea of peaceful protest, come on, yeah. it's America. So that, that bothered me and that's why I spoke out. I did not know um, how involved Malcolm Jenkins was um, with prison work on, on transforming prisons and, and prison reform and that was just really quite amazing to me. I just I think about all of what I don't think people realize how much these athletes do in their private lives. Yeah and I think that was part of Coach Kerr's uh, point is that you know we they do so much and, and they get involved in so many different ways, some of which is publicized and a lot of which isn't but then they take a knee, you know, expressing their First Amendment rights, and all of a sudden that becomes the focus. And I think there's a need to maybe move past that and, and look at the good stuff for a change. Well, next up on our Verge 18 hit parade, here comes Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation and mobility issues. Hey, Katie. Hi, Joel. How's it going? I'm doing great. Um, so you were led a bunch of sessions, including uh, a fleet electrification summit, a half-day event. Um, 
how did it go? What were some of the highlights? It was great. So um, as you know, it was the first uh, Verge that had this um, focus on transportation among the other two topics. And I was so excited about all the sessions. Um, The Fleet Electrification Summit in particular was one of the highlights for me. Um, We spent the half day kind of focused on what are the biggest challenges that are holding back the electrification of trucks and buses. You know, we had a lot of fleet managers in the room. We had policymakers. We had vendors. um, We had a great discussion about, you know, just what are some of the things that are holding these, these industries back. So that's things like electric vehicle infrastructure build out. That's um, the fact that the OEMs aren't necessarily making the heavy duty trucks just yet for, um, some of these certain applications. And, you know, we also talked a lot about public and private partnerships and how to um, create these kind of collaborations to move the market forward. Yeah. And you had that great session on Hyperloop. That was cool. Yes. Yeah. um, That was a really fun conversation on the main stage um, on the on Wednesday uh, I talked to the CEO of Virgin One Hyperloop um, Rob Lloyd and the CEO of Black and Veatch big engineering company and um, we talked about this feasibility study that that Black and Veatch did and it focused on whether or not a Hyperloop project built in Missouri would be viable basically so they looked at you know how much money it would save save through um, these different things like energy savings because the Hyperloop is supposed to be less energy intensive than other forms of transportation. They looked at overall cost. They looked at, you know, what regulations they would have to work on. They looked at all these things and and basically Black and Beach was saying, yes, this is a viable project, you know, if you can meet these certain milestones. So if this eventually ever gets built, this would be the first Hyperloop project built in the U.S., Oh, amazing. And uh, what clips have you lined up for us to listen to? So another really fun conversation um, I had on Wednesday was with Robin Chase and Gabe Klein. And Robin Chase is um, was the co-founder of Zipcar, and she co-founded another company, newer company called Venium, that does um, vehicle communications infrastructure. And so she she gave a talk, and she was looking at how to build the future of mobility infrastructure, um, you know, whether that's roads, whether that's curb space, whether that's um, charging networks, things like that, and how to make sure that when we're building this new infrastructure today, it'll meet the needs and create these cities where people really want to live. So, you know, making sure to keep in mind you know, lowering greenhouse gas emissions, you know, air pollution, um, congestion, equity, maintaining access for people who who haven't had uh, good transportation choices in the past. So her talk was really focused on making sure that these networks um, are being built out in the way that we want them to be. So we necessarily positively over the next five years have to rework and specifically and proactively not wait for status quo, work hard to make active, as in walking and biking and electric scooters, and shared transport, the easy and cheap thing in cities. We have to do this. When these tectonic plates cool, they must cool on the side of shared and active mobility. So our future, when you step out your front door, you will have a choice of easy, interconnected multi-mobility. How will I go? And I want you to think about shared transport as this long, long continuum from the metro up to I'm taking a taxi by myself in a car. 
it's all shared transport and it has a very different impact on how we make choices. And then you mentioned Gabe Klein. Uh, what did he have to say? Right. So Gabe Klein is the former um, director of transportation for Chicago and Washington, D.C., and now he's um, – and then he co-founded a transportation advisory service called CityFi. Um, so he talks to lots of cities um, and works on public and private partnerships. And he had some really interesting things to say about um, this whole idea of pricing the right-of-way. So um, the idea that, you know, freeways aren't necessarily – um, freeways are free, but but they have all these externalities um, that that traditionally cities aren't necessarily pricing into the equation. So that's congestion or air pollution or you know emissions of greenhouse gases from the internal combustion cars driving on them. Um, so he kind of was making the economic approach for how to use different pricing models um, and and political moves to create. Um, this transportation infrastructure that um, is sustainable and equitable. But from the standpoint of like trying to get people to do these things, which Robin talked about, like reducing friction, reducing cost, like it's really on the government side and the business side about coming together and figuring out the right incentives and disincentives. And, and Robin talked about the importance of pricing the right of way. You know, we think of freeways as free. That's why they're called freeways. And they're not free. And like anybody that considers themselves a fiscal conservative should be into the idea of paying for what we use, right? Otherwise, we can't rebuild it. And so, you know, I think, I mean, Robin and I both go out and talk a lot to different groups of people. And I think we need to communicate to people that there's spending and there's investing. And we need to invest in our future. And the fiscally conservative way to do that is to get more people on bikes, more people on scooters, more people on transit, more people walking. And it's also healthier. And so we got to give people the incentives to do those things. And then we have to apply the disincentives, which means pricing and reallocating space, raising prices for parking, getting rid of parking in some cases. So it's really about sociology and like psychology, right? And it's really about like, what are the carrots that we're going to give people first, preferably? And then what are the sticks that we're going to give people? Um, and those two things drive behavior because we're basically just big kids. Great sessions, Katie. And you built the entire transportation conference uh, almost single-handedly. So kudos to you for that. It was a great, great event. One of three concurrent conferences we ran last week. Katie Fehrenbacher is senior writer. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Joel. So Joel, no rest for the weary. You walked right back into a webcast um, this week uh, on, on the circular economy. And this one was a, a topic that a lot of people are asking questions about, um, measuring circularity, why life cycle assessment is not the right tool. And I think um, just how, how focused our audience is habitually on metrics and how do I measure this and and how do I understand if I'm doing the right thing, or is this the better approach, and so forth? Um, that was sort of the the you know underlying um, those were the underlying questions that were being addressed by this webcast. But tell me a little bit about um, about what you had in mind as the host for this. So as the circular economy has has grown and become uh, you know moved sort of from the margins to the to the mainstream, there's a need for 
sort of thinking about, well, how do we actually track this? And, you know, because right now circularity is, is, it's a bit of an arm wave where oh, we're circular and, you know, all that. It's not uh, something that you can actually put numbers to. And traditionally, the way we put numbers to things is through life cycle assessment or LCA, which has been a key measurement tool for measuring the, the environmental costs and benefits of any product. Uh, the question here is when, when circularity involves reuse or taking materials and putting them into the ground as, a, as a bio, what we call biological nutrients or putting them back into circulation or uh, repairing and upgrading or sharing things like cars or lawnmowers or whatever, how do you measure that? And that is uh, what Underwriters Lab, UL, um, has been working on and, and they um, sponsored this webcast to, to, to air some of what they're doing and talk about some of, of their tools. So there's a new generation of tools and standards to measure and assess what circularity means. And I have to give props now to the Green Biz audience because this was an incredibly technical, geeky, scientific uh, webcast. Uh, what was going on there was not simple. It was not an arm wave at all. And I mean, I, I will admit that I was having trouble uh, just sort of keeping up with some of what was going on. But, uh, you know, I've done that a, a bunch in the past. So I, I think, <laughs> I don't think it showed, but um, I have to say that the questions being asked by the Green Biz audience were just mind-blowing. And, and in fact, the speakers were saying, wow, <laughs> these are such great questions. And I think it really helped them evolve their thinking um, just by the kinds of questions that were being asked. So props to the Green Biz audience, uh, you rocked it. But um, you listened, what, what did you think? <laughs> so geek that I am took a lot of notes. It was a really good session. Um, and I captured a number of clips that I thought were particularly fascinating. I think it, it's worth playing some of the commentary on what makes a life cycle assessment process different from the process of assessing a product or a company or a process for circularity um, and, and where you go with that. And I think um, these, I'm going to set up these two clips here. Um, they, there's, the first is from Bill Hoffman. Uh, he's the senior scientist at UL Environment who was participating on the webcast. And then the second is a con combined answer um, with, with Bill plus um, David Rakowski. He's the managing consultant for PA Consulting Group. Um, which is a lot of product design um, work and, and is, is obviously thinking about this a lot. But these two um, comments and, and, and answers, if you will, really, I think, help synthesize uh, what the difference is and how, how the Green Biz um, sustainability professional crowd should think about this. Typically, LCA models are defined by how uh, the flows of materials are set up. So for instance, I'd, I've done cases where I've looked at different recycled content materials uh, for an LCA, which how much of an impact or how much of a benefit does using recycled content or recycling the material at end of life have? And this is not real data, but it's illustrative of what you can see sometimes, that different routes for disposal and for bringing materials in have a different impact based on the LCA. Circularity facts, really is looking at 
where these materials are going and what the flows are. And those flows help define what the LCA would look like. For each of these different routes of circularity, we could have a very high circularity score. A high content is recycled content or reused components, and it's designed to be very recyclable. It could be uh, byproduct synergies in recycling. So each of these different routes with a high recyclability score might have a different impact when looking at it from an LCA perspective. The information from circularity facts is used to create a model for the life cycle assessment. In the end, these different models help us understand which of the circularity routes have the least impact. And so the two tools are really quite complementary, although they're measuring different things. And I would suggest today we should start measuring circularity performance. We're very far from having a very circular product in general. And we can worry about looking at the LCAs as we add analytical tools onto uh, circularity facts. For instance, we're starting to use the US EPA WARM model to understand what the performance of uh, sites, the impact or the benefit is from waste diversion for sites with diverting waste from landfill. So there's tools out there like that we can use to help us understand what the performance is for the different circularity facts. And LCA is really one of those tools. LCA does look at the whole life cycle of the product. But in the end, how circular that product is is part of the definition of the model that's used for the LCA. And that model can be many different things. Um, it doesn't really define how circular the product is. How circular the product is defines the model being used in the LCA. And so that's really the key difference. Um, doing the LCA provides critical information about the whole life cycle impact of the choices being made. But there's lots of ways of being circular, and not all of them are going to have the same impact. And that's where, where LCA really comes in. Um, so while LCA measures the impacts of being circular, it really doesn't measure how circular a product is. How circular a product is is something that's determined separately and then put into the model for the LCA. If you imagine you might have two circular circular routes, one which is um, re, you know, on the ends of the spectrum, one which is recycle, one which is reuse. Um, in, the, uh, in the recycle, uh, in, if in the reuse example, you need to, um, uh, both of which are circular, and they'll get, you'll get a circularity score from that, but in the reuse example, if you're needing to move stuff from um, one location to one centralized location, and there's a, and, uh, there's a lot of uh, energy and carbon required to do that, that's going to have one circularity score, but if you can recycle on a much more local basis, it's going to so it's going to have one LCA score, but if you can recycle on a much more local basis, you can have another LCA score. So they, they really are complementary things, um, one which uh, helps inform the other. As you heard at the top of the show, this week's podcast is sponsored by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA, a contractor to the beef checkoff. And here with me now is Dr. Sarah Place, Senior Director, Sustainable Beef Production Research at NCBA. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Joel. So first of all, what does sustainability mean when it comes to beef? 
Yeah. So similar to as we define sustainability in other fields, it's about balancing social, economic and environmental issues. So for beef specifically, it's about producing safe and nutritious beef while maintaining environmental stewardship, social responsibility and due diligence um, and economic viability as well. So we hear a lot about carbon emissions that cattle produce. First of all, why do cattle produce so much greenhouse gas and, and what is the industry doing about it? So a little bit of background, and if we look at the EPA's uh, greenhouse gas emission inventory, it's about 2% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions come from the beef cattle industry. And the bulk of those emissions are actually coming from the animals themselves. So they naturally produce methane gas, which is about 28 times more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And so that's really where the bulk of our emissions come from. And it's also a main focus on what we're actually doing to try to mitigate emissions as well. So we know that traditionally some part of a cow's life takes place in a feedlot and some of it on a pasture. Where exactly do the emissions occur and what is the relationship between things like corn that uh, are being fed versus uh, grazing in the grass? Yeah, so the, the U.S. beef industry is quite unique in that it's kind of a combination of extensive grazing plus, as you mentioned, um, cattle being in a feed yard for what we call the finishing phase of their life. So it's roughly about two-thirds of their life will be spent primarily grazing, and about a third they'll be eating a grain-based diet, mostly corn in the United States, in a feed yard. Um, so when you think about that methane that I just mentioned, um, it naturally is produced within the cow's stomach compartment called the rumen. And they actually belch out the methane. So, you know, we often hear a lot about cow farts in the media, but it's actually a misinformation, if you will, because most of it comes out the front end of the animal. And then also counter to sometimes what, what people think is when cattle are eating more grass, more fibrous material in their diet, like hay, in that first two thirds of their life, they actually produce more methane per animal per day as compared to when they're in the feed yard eating a grain-based diet, they actually produce less methane uh, when they're in a feedlot. That's interesting. So when we talk about grass-fed beef, that may produce a certain quality of beef that people like, but you're saying that that actually produces more emissions through, I guess, belching than when they eat corn? Yeah, so most research has found that grass-finished beef actually tends to have more greenhouse gas emissions associated with for the reasons that you just mentioned. The other factor there is it tends to take a longer time for the animal to reach the point of harvest when we're talking about grass-finished beef cattle. And so they have more days that they're alive that they're burping out that methane. And so that adds up in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. So talk a little bit about what the industry is doing to reduce these emissions. Yeah, so there's a few different angles that folks are taking. So there's lots of research going on, land-grant universities, public universities, uh, looking at different things we can feed cattle from a standpoint of the feed ingredients. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, more grain equals uh, lower methane emissions. But there's also folks looking at uh, adding small amounts of fat to the animal's diets to decrease methane. We have even unique situations, like there's a project going on right now at uh, University of California, Davis, looking at actually seaweed um, and adding a little bit of seaweed to animals' diets to reduce methane. So lots of different angles um, from that perspective. There are also commercial companies looking at trying to make feed additives that can decrease methane emissions. 
And then more broadly, we have focuses on just the animal genetics themselves, uh, how well they perform in terms of growth per day and getting those animals to that point of of harvest sooner. And that can decrease uh, the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions produced per each pound of beef that people actually eat, uh, just the overall efficiency of the industry. One of the things that we've been covering here at GreenBiz is these new techniques that I guess are known informally as carbon farming. We're changing grazing methods for for cow and other animals that can actually help them uh, bring more soil into the carbon, thereby sequestering. Is that part of the work that you're doing at the NCBA? Yeah, so that's something that we look at and also um, definitely support in terms of other folks that are that are looking at those issues. So actually what we just mentioned with grass versus grain finished beef, uh, there are other folks that are doing research and kind of looking a little bit deeper in that and saying, well, how about if we change our grazing management practices? Can we um, increase the amount of carbon that we're storing in the soil enough to offset those methane emissions that I mentioned earlier? Um, there's been some work that's been done at Michigan State University that would suggest that may be possible. And so that's kind of an exciting line of work and something that we're definitely interested in seeing what other independent researchers come up with. But we have lots of great examples of producers around the country that do things like integrating crop systems with cattle, uh, folks that grow grains like corn or oats or soybeans, um, and use cattle as a tool for them to help build soil carbon through their crop rotation and using cover crops. So it's definitely an exciting time from a research perspective and getting those uh, practices that we know work out to more farmers and ranchers across the United States. I'm always struck with sustainability issues, and this one is no different, how complex they are and, and all the various trade-offs that I guess the public doesn't really able to understand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So for this whole issue of methane that cattle produce, another great example of a trade-off like you just mentioned is that that really is the trade-off for cattle using feeds that we can't use um, directly as human beings. So they're able to eat grass and all these fibrous feeds and turn it into a food product in terms of beef. Uh, But the cost of that is that methane gas that they produce. So yeah, there's all sorts of complexities on this topic. And lots more work to do. Sarah Place, Senior Director of Sustainable Beef Production Research at NCBA, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always appreciate your cards and letters. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Greenbiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.